The Old Pilot's Plain Tales RAF Form 414 The Logbook My first RAF logbook starts on the 24th of January 1975 with a flight in a chipmunk, incorrectly spelt with an O, like a member of a religious order devoted to chip potatoes. It was Whiskey Papa 871 and with Squadron Leader Dummer, the boss of the RAF Church Fenton Primary Flying Grading School. It lasted 50 minutes and we flew Grad X 1, performing one landing. So begins one of three books which encompass 19 years of the most fun flying a chap could have. I thought I might occasionally dip into these books to see if any stories emerge that might be interesting to recall. A few months after that chipmunk flight, I'm up the road at RAF Linton on Ouse, uh, the rather dubious name for the local river, and climbing into a Jet Provost Mark III to begin flying training in earnest. I note that it took me two flights, totalling one hour and 40 minutes, to get through the straight and level exercises, before I was allowed to start turning, climbing and descending. Trip 8 had me doing the dangerous and highly complicated 45 degree angle of bank turns. Wow, what a fun time my instructor, soon to gain the moniker Tricky Dicky, must have had. First jet solo came at trip 14 after 10 hours and 50 minutes and consisted of a 5 minute circuit. Not exactly stunning stuff, so I'm going to leaf forward a few pages before I send you all to sleep. I see a few repeated trips during basic instrument flying. Obviously my grasp of IF wasn't as good as I remember. Plenty of radar recoveries and precision approach radar landings, and eventually I'm put before an instrument rating examiner to get my basic instrument flying grading. I guess it was a relief to pass that and get into some more exciting flying with my introduction to low level and lots of general handling, which would have involved spins, stalls and aerobatics. We were all told to develop an aero sequence that tested our ability to stitch a series of aerobatic manoeuvres together into a smoothly flowing demonstration of our skills. Sent off on our frequent solo trips, we would head off out over the Yorkshire Dales to practice. To see if we could keep our manoeuvres properly aligned, we needed a feature under us that would show us if our noddy stall turn had kept straight or if we had flown a squint loop. Much favoured by the students was the beautiful tree-lined avenue leading up to Castle Howard. Long, gun-barrel straight and almost perfectly north-south, it was ideal, but more than once I was in some complicated outside turn into a three-quarter slow roll followed by a half-cubinate blah, when the red and white flash of another student's JP would cream past the canopy because they had picked exactly the same spot to practice. Ah well, it was a big sky. Well into the course now, it was time for night flying. 
Usually, we flew visually, navigating from well-learned landmarks, the city of York, the flat dales, the coast around Scarborough and Flamborough Head, avoiding the noise restriction over the Flamingo Park Zoo and keeping an eye out for the Great Northern Road with its line of RAS stations, Elvington, Church Fenton, Linton, Dishforth, Topcliffe and Leeming. At night, however, it all looked different. Huge black spaces interspersed with blobs of twinkling lights that made Huthswaite look just like Easingwold and Ampleforth resemble Nunnington. York looked just like a huge mass of illumination that stretched well beyond its usual limits and on a clear night the vast glow from Leeds and Manchester looked so close we feared we had strayed off course. On our solo navigation exercises, no one ever wanted to be off first. We all liked to look ahead and see the comforting stream of anti-collision lights in front, confirming we were going the right way. Heaven only knows what would have happened if the first guy ever got lost. He probably would have played Pied Piper to the next 20 students, leading them a merry dance all over Yorkshire. There was a story that one foreign student was so nervous of flying his solo Navex, he spent the entire trip parked up in a remote corner of the airfield with his lights off, just making the required radio calls and never actually getting airborne. Then came our eagerly awaited land-away navigation trip. My instructor at that point was the lovely Mike Franks, in a previous incarnation, Mike had flown with the Royal Navy on board a carrier, Ark Royal, I think, flying the remarkable Fairy Gannet airborne early warning aircraft. In the 50s, the RN had used Douglas Sky Raiders in that role, but the Gannet was the British-built replacement. It was a damned ugly monster of a machine powered by an Armstrong Siddeley double Mamba turboprop firing two contra-rotating bladed props around. Its wings could contort via a strange double-folding mechanism to save space, and under the belly there was a pregnant bulge that housed the radar scanner. Mike had made a faux pas when taxiing off from the runway at Lossiemouth when he lifted his gear instead of his flaps, and unfortunately the undercarriage interlocks failed to prevent his ugly monster from settling down onto its radome whilst the props beat a tattoo on the concrete taxiway. We were allowed to choose which base we landed away at, but Mike kept dropping hints that a visit to his old Royal Naval Station at Yeovilton would be great fun. We flew low-level to Shawbury, refuelled and then transited to Yeovilton, where I was introduced to the delightfully confusing world of the Navy. Despite being on the land, the base behaved as if it was at sea, to leave the airfield was to do a run ashore, the toilets were the heads, and everyone seemed to be drinking horses' necks. I spent a very pleasant evening with the fish heads, being called a crab, before getting some sleep. The next day was free, and I had already worked out that if I rented a car I could get from Yeovilton to Winchester fairly easily to see my girlfriend, who was at teacher training college there. 
All went well until I decided to stay the night and drive back early in the morning. When I woke, I realised that I had overslept by several hours. In a cold sweat, I thrashed back to the airfield and looked for Mike in the breakfast room. No sign of him. I blagged a lift to the flight line and there he was, sitting, strapped into the jet, slowly drumming his fingers on the canopy rail. I sheepishly climbed in beside him, and once I got strapped in, he clicked on his microphone and said just one thing. Take us home. Those were the only words he spoke for the whole trip. I carefully flew the high-level Navex back to Linton, and he climbed out without looking back whilst I tidied up the cockpit. The debrief consisted of one sentence. Don't ever do that to me again. Lesson learned, I guess. I must have made an impression on the girl, however. She married me, and we're still going 40 years later. After 115 hours, I'd finished with the Jet Provis Mark III and moved on to the slightly more powerful and pressurised Mark V. I see sortie after sortie of formation flying, general handling, aerobatics, low-level navigation. We were down to 250 feet with an instructor and 500 feet when solo. With some 200 hours behind us, it was time to get our wings and move on to fast jet training at RAF Valley in Wales on the Folland Nat. My first trip was with my new instructor, Flight Lieutenant Ray Pilly. Ray was an ex-Phantom pilot who came to RAF Valley through an interesting route. Previously based in Germany at RAF Bruggen on 31 Squadron, Ray was flying a recently modified aircraft which had changed the Phantom's wing fold system from one operated from the cockpit to one that was controlled by the engineers from the wheel well. On this aircraft, the wings had been spread but, through an oversight, not locked. The cockpit warning lights had been disabled as part of the modification, so the only confirmation was a little orange pin that stuck up from the wing when unlocked. Unfortunately, this pin had been oversprayed by camouflage paint during a recent respray and was almost invisible. Ray did his walk around, but failed to notice the protruding spigots. As they tried to take to the air... The wings folded, and the aircraft pitched up nearly into the vertical. The Phantom danced on its reheats at about 100 feet for a short while, but was obviously going nowhere, so Ray ejected, only half a second ahead of his navigator, who had had the same idea. They were so close that Ray's seat rocket lightly toasted his navigator, and they landed not far from their aircraft, which itself came down only 100 feet, from the nuclear QRA sheds housing four nuclear-armed F-4s. Trip 3 on the Nat was a practice diversion to Shawbury. It was the sortie that killed my fellow student Ash Smart, which I talked about on the plain tale Death of a Pilot on APG 209. My logbook gives few clues about the trips I flew, just a list of exercise numbers until I come up to my final navigation test. 
I had developed a bad habit of messing with the main gyro compass, and whereas I thought I was correctly synchronising it, I was actually doing the reverse. As we all know, a one degree error in heading will displace you one nautical mile from track for every 60 nautical miles you fly. At 420 knots in the nat, it didn't take long to do 60 miles and I was quickly getting miles from my intended track. I was given a senior instructor to fly with, Rick Peacock Edwards, or RPE as we all called him. A hugely experienced pilot who flew Hunters, Lightnings, Phantoms and then the Tornado quickly worked out what I was doing and after a few extra trips he had me back on track in more ways than one. After the NAT it was time to get over the runway to 3 Squadron which flew Hunters. We converted to the Hunter at Valley to save time when we got to our tactical weapons unit where all our flying would be on the venerable fighter. After three dual trips, I have proudly written Hunter F Mark VI, First Fighter Solo. That first Hunter Solo was a revelation. The side-by-side two-seater was a completely different aircraft to the single-seater, and after doing my walk-around, I gazed up at the closed canopy and wondered how the hell it was supposed to open. I didn't remember reading about any external controls for it, and I was stumped. Rather than displaying my ignorance, I said to the line mechanic who was seeing me off, I say, old chap, would you mind opening the cockpit for me? He gave me a look that spoke volumes, and obviously thought I was the laziest bloody student he had ever had the misfortune to meet. Reaching up with one finger, he rolled the canopy back on its rails until it was open, and then folded his arms. Blushing, I climbed in. There were no external controls on the single-seater, because when unoccupied, the canopy was declutched from the electric motor and would roll back and forth quite freely. We were all briefed on how fast the single-seaters were, but nothing could prepare me for quite how quickly things were going to happen. With no tanks, weapons or even gun ports on the Valley Mark Sixes, they were probably the fastest hunters around, and things happened quicker than I ever expected. Like most students, I expect, particularly in the unfamiliar layout of this new cockpit, I oversped both the gear and the flaps as I fumbled to find the controls in time. I had no idea what it would have been like to steer a bobsled down the crest to run, but after that solo, I felt like I'd done just that. It took days to wipe the smile off my face. With that short course out of the way, it was time to head down to RAF Brody and to join Strike Command. We flew a combination of the Hunter Mark 6A, Mark 7 and Mark 9. It wasn't a long course, and we spent most of our time learning the academics of bombing, strafing, firing rockets and air-to-air gunnery. We regularly flew in four-ship tactical formations, but I see nothing remarkable except for a gunnery exercise, called off because a boat strayed into the target area, which was on the sands at Pembrey Range, and the day I scored 72% with snap rockets. Of note, 
Our squadron boss was the irrepressible Hoof Proudfoot, an ex-Harrier pilot who wore the Air Force Cross for exceptional airmanship after safely landing a Harrier with a total electrics failure at night. He flew as an exchange pilot with the US Marines and later became an airline pilot. He became involved with the historic aircraft collection at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford and went on to fly a P-51 Mustang in Steven Spielberg's movie Empire of the Sun. Sadly, he died displaying a P-38 Lightning in 1996. Having thrown my body at the ground in the Hunter with great success, since I generally missed, it was now time to move on to the Phantom. I was starting to see a link between the instructors that I was being given. Were they all having their hands slapped? My next mentor was the lovely Roy Lawrence, whose claim to fame was to shoot down a Jaguar in Germany with a live sidewinder. That story is in APG 234, whoosh, bang, oops, but I think I'll leave my exploits in the Phantom and the rest of my career to a later date.